Welcome to What The If. It's been a long time. Well, but thanks to the relativity of time, for our listeners, it might not be. That's true. That's true. So, uh, I apologize to our to any listeners who felt an extended time dilation or time who just missed the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, also, my pun my pun engine may be running a little bit slowly. Uh, any of you who follow us, uh, the What the If Facebook page or Twitter account, What the If Show, uh, may have been curious, what is all this stuff about this video game missed? Basically, I'm making a documentary about that video game. If you do remember it, let me know, because I'm looking for people who know about it. But uh, I did a Kickstarter for it, which ended up consuming me for a month. And uh, it was successful, thankfully. So uh, ah. that documentary is on the way. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, and we'll get to her in a second, but it turns out our guest is also a big Mist fan. But we won't dwell too much on Mist. What the Mist? Save that for another show. But that's mm -hmm. where we've been, Good and we're idea. back. And uh, I'm glad to be back. Um, my co-host is here, Matt Stanley. He never actually left. He just been. I've actually here. been sitting at this microphone uh, for yeah. what for three weeks now. Um, yeah, and uh, frankly, it's getting a little smelly here. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing for that. Just be uh, grateful you're on the other side of the East River. That's exactly, exactly. Well, we are still on lockdown, somewhat. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt, uh, who's our guest today? Our guest today is Emily Levesque, uh, Doctor Emily, I should say, uh, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Washington. Uh, and the author of the exciting new book, The Last Stargazers, um, which I suspect is related to the problem that uh, in Seattle, you probably do not get many very good nights for observing the night sky. This is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you have to go to exotic locales to, to do interesting things? Yeah, the book explores. I think I think people are really surprised at some of the wacky adventures that astronomers have when we do our research. You think of astronomer, and I think you imagine this nocturnal person wearing a lab coat for no reason and just staying up all night at this telescope. And we have some really wild things happen to us. We go to really remote parts of the world. We run into weird natural disasters, weird animals. We'll do all sorts of crazy antics to try and capture really the only data we can get. In astronomy, which is like little bits of light. You know, this is so funny. I must have been reading, I think this morning I was reading an article and now I realize it probably was, I don't know if you wrote it or it was about your book. It was about an astronomer, a young astronomer who was on, who was near Mount St. Helens. Yes, that was an excerpt from my book. So Engadget posted this excerpt <laughs> oh, wow, over cool. this past weekend. Um, and yeah, that's an infamous story in the Pacific Northwest, of course, but there was an astronomer doing research for his thesis, and he was alone on the top of a mountain, had a beautiful night of observing, and then went to sleep. And the morning while he was sleeping was when Mount St. Helens erupted. And the ash plume blew directly over his mountain. So he woke up the next morning, and he thought the world had ended. He was just like, <laughs> there's no sun. I, he's pointing a flashlight out the door, and it can go like 10 feet in front of him. And it's not in the era where you can like check your phone for a notification. So he's like right. trying to get something on the radio going like, have we been nuked? What is happening? <laughs> But yeah, pretty surreal. 
Yeah, I can't imagine how spooky that must have been for him. Uh, it was great. He to literally, he literally that. thought. I mean, he thought. He, he says right that he 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 uh, turned on the radio, and they were playing cha cha music. Yeah, he was <laughs> like, "Well, that's a ch- that's a choice for the end of the world." Yeah. But as a good scientist, he was taking very careful notes about all of his observing. And he normally astronomers will fill out a little log entry saying, oh, I got eight clear sky hours and I pointed at these stars and the temperature was good and the sky didn't have any clouds in it. So he has this amazing epic log entry that's like, well, I lost six hours because of a volcano. And <laughs> here's exactly what happened. I tried to cover the telescope so the ash wouldn't damage it. And like very scrupulous scientific notes, but just like so volcano. Yeah. <laughs> that's great where do you go from there yeah and even there were like little asides he put in there right like oh good, yeah good excuse right or something like that great yeah so so based our our if this week uh matt but just remind remind me because i've been away a while what is this what is this show again it's kind of like a game show i think well it is a show that includes a game certainly um and yes. the game is uh we change a little something about reality um what if humans had webbed feet or uh, what if the sun was cold? Um, and then we uh, run with the consequences of that change. Um, and we sort of usually end up destroying the universe in some way. You know, what if the sun was cold? That's not a bad one. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> it was a snowball the size of the sun. Uh, so this week, considering the, uh, uh, what my people will call the schlepping that people that astronomers have to do that the the onerous travel that they have to do sometimes or or the crazy kinds of situations they have to do just to get good clear uh skies mm-hmm. to do their work um emily what was what was your idea for was, an, what what do you ask i was wondering what astronomers jobs would be like if we had cheaper cheap faster than light space travel what the if we had game show like music for astronomers and what the if astronomers could travel wherever they wanted as fast as they wanted to get as close as they wanted to the objects they want to step so let's, what we like to do is I like to build, because one thing that's fun about these thought experiments is starting small and watching how it, you know, eventually, as Matt said, deviates into apocalyptic or, or not. It could be utopian. Mm-hmm, that's right. Occasional utopian. It yeah. could be but one of those situations. Um, so right now, for instance, what's the hardest uh, thing one has to do as an astronomer? First of all, do astronomers still actually go to the telescope? <laughs> this is a great question to ask right now, because if you'd asked me six months ago, yes, <laughs> now less so. But um, we actually do have lots of telescopes where astronomers still have to travel to them in person. So we will go to a remote mountaintop in somewhere like the American Southwest or the foothills of the Andes and Chile. These are places that are gorgeously dark. The sky is really clear. The air is really dry and still and we'll physically go to the telescope and sit there and work with a specialist that knows how to operate the telescope and get data so that's really the hardest part of our job like we don't get a lot um with a few very rare exceptions with people that study like meteors meteorites um 
we don't get a lab where we can tinker with what we're studying. We just have to kind of collect light and we're collecting light from immensely far away that's super dim. So we'll work with telescopes that are like 27, 35 feet across, like really enormous telescopes to just get whatever little bits of light we can for our science. So how much of your time, say, over a course of a year do you actually spend in a telescope? You know, shockingly little. Um, we don't have that many really great research-grade telescopes in the world, and accessing them is pretty competitive. Um, there are, I think, on the order of a few dozen really top-notch, huge telescopes that can observe the most distant things we're currently studying in the universe. And in the entire planet, there's about 50,000 professional astronomers. So that doesn't sound wow. like that many. But that means yeah. you're sharing a telescope with a thousand people? Right. And we have to we apply for use of a telescope like other scientists apply for grant funding. You actually write a whole proposal and say, this is worth two nights of time on that telescope so I can study how cold the sun is or something like that. And then if you get the time, you're granted a specific night and you go out and travel there. But we'll maybe use a handful of nights in a year or we'll do a couple dozen nights. But astronomers are spending most of their time working on the data that they gather rather than gathering the data itself. Interesting. All right, that's cool. Now, why do you... It's, it's just, it, uh, I actually met Matt making a documentary about Einstein and uh, telling the story that Matt also <laughs> tells in his excellent book, Einstein's mm -hmm. War, now, now, now and always available um, at better, all the better stores, even some of the not-so-better ones probably still have it because it's... The 1919... It's that, it's that, yeah, it's that good. Um, Einstein's War by Matthew Stanley. But, um, and, and that tells the story of how you know, Einstein uh, uh, kind of needed... That's right. Yeah, he needed astronomers to help him confirm or... Not oh, yes, in California. Yeah. And uh, of relativity. So, um, but in that process, I met a lot of astronomers, which was amazing. And I got to go to some amazing observatories, like the Lick Observatory in uh, I don't know, California, which is like some, you know, giant Jules Verne-esque contraption. And it, extraordinary. But uh, I also met Andrea Ghez, who um, is, you know, famous astronomer who studies the, the black hole at the center of the galaxy and lots of things. And she was telling me, and this, is, this was like 2008, 2007, 2008. And uh, she was saying she was lamenting the fact that she she used to go, I think, to the Keck telescope in Hawaii often or more. And, and that these days they had built some Internet connection, you know, to her office. And so she didn't go there as often. So why what are the when, when an astronomer gets to go, let's say I'll call it gets to go uh, to one of these remote places. What is it that they're doing there that they can't do um, with, via remote. I can understand why the technicians need to be at the telescope, obviously. But. Yeah, this is a great question because we've been seeing a shift to more remote operations or even in some cases robotic operations. And that's a big part of what I talk about in the book, in The Last Stargazers, is this shift to sort of where astronomers are in the process. Sometimes we'll physically go to a telescope because there are types of observations we're doing that are just a little too fiddly or a little too detailed. And it's really best if the astronomer is there to make the decisions in real time. Sometimes observatories are set up with different, ver like varying degrees of automation. This is a little beyond just sort of the video game model of like, well, if I push this button, the telescope turns that way. Um, and in a lot of cases, you do still have operators on site who are specialists in how the telescopes work. So it varies from observatory to observatory, from 
the different types of science that we're doing. Andrea Guess is right. I definitely do go to telescopes less now than I used to. And I did my entire PhD thesis with the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. But I, when I went to Keck, I went to a control room at sea level that was connected to the telescopes themselves on the top of a mountain. And it was wonderful because we had plentiful oxygen instead of being up at almost 14,000 feet. And it was a little bit easier for travel purposes. And I was connected like over a basically um, primitive Zoom connection with the operator in the control room. But there are different things that you can or can't do depending on how close you are to the telescope or how automated the observations are. And it's interesting to have watched that drift because there's some science you can just do by telling a telescope to automatically point at things. Um, nowadays, we're really starting to lean on remote observing because of COVID and because of how hard it's become to travel or because you might not want to cram that many people into a telescope control room. So we've been adjusting and learning along with everyone else. And it's definitely an interesting topic covered in The Last Stargazers is what this means for how we do research. Right. And, and the ultimate thing, I think that it's still news to a lot of people that you don't actually look through a telescope for, for any number of reasons, one of which is that the kind of observing you're doing requires long term. If you did look through the telescope, you might not actually see very much because you're, you might actually see a rather dark or completely dark part of the sky. Is that right? Because it takes time to collect the photons. Yeah, we now have digital cameras, essentially, where our eyes would normally be. When I interviewed people for The Last Stargazers, a question I asked everyone was, what would surprise people the most about how astronomers do our jobs? And everyone said, well, we don't look through eyepieces anymore. We actually take digital images or digital data, which is wonderfully scientific, but you kind of lose the ability to see something with your eye. Um, every once in a while, astronomers will stick an eyepiece onto a big telescope if we have one. And we sound like six-year-olds looking through it. Like <laughs> we would sound terribly scientific. And then we'll take a giant telescope and point it at a star and just be like, oh, it's so red. It's so pretty. Look how shiny it is. Like the enthusiasm just completely comes back. But the science is all done digitally now. Yeah. So get now you get to travel. And so uh, the, where's the first place you would go? You can go wherever you want. I know exactly where I would go first. So I would go to Betelgeuce immediately. Ah, yes. We just summoned Betelgeuce. Sorry. Don't say it three times. Yeah. <laughs> three, yeah. yeah. Oh, we've done it. Okay. One more and we, he's here. Um, so tell, tell us about that. I, I honestly, the, the, I'm most familiar with Betelgeuce from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's where a lot of people know it. Um, <laughs> so it's Betelgeuse is, it's also a really easy star to find in the night sky, because if you can huh. find Orion, which is so great, you just look for the three stars in the belt. Betelgeuse is the star in one of Orion's shoulders that looks red. And it's a star called a red supergiant, which are actually my research specialty. These are stars that are a lot more massive than our sun. And they're really cool, literally, because they're a lot colder than our sun <laughs> and because they will eventually die as a supernova and leave behind something like a neutron star or a black hole. So you're kind of looking at these aged stars getting ready to die. And by studying them, even from super far away with telescopes, we can get a bead on like the physics that's going on inside them. So, so you I say would... cold. What is cold? How cold are we talking? Cold is about um, 3,400 Kelvin. Um, which is the unit that we'll all use. So 3,400 Kelvin going into Fahrenheit is about 5,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Which, like, that's hot. 
that's not unbelievable. Our sun right. <laughs> is almost 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's noticeably co colder than our sun. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, almost half. Yeah. Yeah. So Betelgeuse is a great nearby example of a red supergiant. And when I say nearby, right. I talk in astronomer distances. So it's 642 light years away. So, uh -oh. you know, Matt, back Matt, how many uh, Kessel runs is that? <laughs> oh, that's here. That would be or parsecs. Uh, I don't know. Uh, fifty Kessel runs. Okay, like fifty. That. Yeah. Uh, for, for so those of you who are using Star Wars units, yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent. <laughs> so what? So what do you get from being close up? Well, like, what's yeah. the right distance do you want to be from Betelgeuse? Do you want to be like right on the surface? Do you want to be, mm. you know, an Earth's orbit out? What's the best spot? Well. Even talking about the distance is kind of funny because if we put Betelgeuse where our sun is, Earth would be gone. Earth would be inside. Oh, excellent. We've already destroyed the Earth. Yeah, so, yeah, so we've already caused one apocalypse. Um, <laughs> so you don't want to be that close. But my immediate question is actually going to be, is Betelgeuse still there? Because <gasps> if we can travel faster than light, this is one of the super cool things about if astronomers could just go to the stuff we're studying. We're now moving faster than the light that we typically collect. So. If you went up and looked at Betelgeuse this fall when it's visible again in the night sky, the light that you're seeing is 642 years old. So I would immediately just want to go there and like check on it and see if it's still there. We don't have any reason to think that Betelgeuse has died in the intervening 642 years between when the light that we're now seeing got emitted and what it's up to these days. But you never know. Um, so it would be really great to just go and see how it's doing, see if it's okay. Um, I'd also want to at least be far enough away that I could get a look at what the whole star looks like. So we're used to just seeing stars as little dots of light, but we also know something about what our sun looks like. We've seen some gorgeous pictures recently from NASA probes that are able to image the surface of the sun. And if you have the proper eye protection and the proper like telescope equipment, you can see the sun is like a little disc or a little ball. And you can actually see differences across its surface. You can see sunspots and hot patches and cold patches. And we'd really love to be able to do the same thing with Betelgeuse because Betelgeuse has those big hot and cold patches just like our sun. But because the star is so big and so cold, it basically makes the star like this big puffed up ball. And its surface could wind up looking really weird. It'll have huge hot and cold cells that are kind of boiling away and really changing how the star looks up close. We can barely resolve Betelgeuse into a little disc right now, but if we could just like fly up to it and have a look, we'd instantly learn so much more. Wow. Now, if we were traveling so faster than speed of light, and uh, if you did get, let's say you got there, let's say you warped there and boom, you just appeared there uh, and it had died, couldn't you then, and maybe Matt, you can help us here. Could I now, let's suppose we, we do the drive there and we come out of hyperspace and boom. Oh, oh, it's gone. Um, I could swear there was supposed to be a planet here and it's not. So the death star has destroyed Betelgeuse. Uh, right. To the <laughs> now can I, well, it died. And so can I back up? Can I go backwards? in and 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 then go backwards and forwards and watch it yeah this is one of these nifty it's That's a feature not fabulous. a bug uh <laughs> part of uh, warp speed astronomy is that so so right now as emily said if if you yes yeah, sorry if you look at betelgeuse right now 
you are seeing light that left the surface of Betelgeuse 642 years ago. Um, so that's, you know, the, the Mongols are attacking Eastern Europe and, you know, there's controversies over whether the Pope in Rome or the Pope in Paris is the real, it's, it's that, that's the, the era of these right. things that are going on. If they're watching the news. Uh, I assume they are. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and then if you wait, um, so every second that you're watching Betelgeuse, uh, it's, you know, a second passes on the surface of Betelgeuse 642 years ago that you're looking at. Um, but then if we use our warp speed drive to fly right to the surface of Betelgeuse, we're getting real-time views, right? Um, but that means there's 642 years of light, mm -hmm. 642 mm. years worth of images of the surface of Betelgeuse that's traveling through space between the surface of the star and the Earth. So if we can really just teleport around wherever we want, Presumably, we could put ourselves at any place in that 642-year interval, right? So we could see what yeah. it looked like 100 years ago or 200 years ago um, or during the election, right? There's also whatever we want. That's got to be a pretty cool thing to be able to do. Yeah. One of the things that we really can't do in astronomy right now is we can't predict when a star is about to die or when a star is about to explode and give us a supernova. And we would love to be able to because different types of stars will give us a different type of supernova. Some of them will make black holes. Some of them will make neutron stars. And we are right now just sort of stuck waiting with the light that's making it to us. So if we, for example, jumped in our faster than light spaceship, went to Betelgeuse and we're like, well, that's gone. We could try backing up and saying, well, what if we went to somewhere that's 200 light years away? Do we still see it? Do we see the supernova? Do we see the leftovers after the supernova. Now, looking at Betelgeuse from up close might help because we might see the signs of a relatively recent supernova. And the way a supernova actually works is the core of a star basically runs out of fuel. Um, the core of a star will be fusing hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon or what have you to kind of fight the press of the star's own gravity. And a star like Betelgeuse is eventually going to run out of fusion fuel. And at that point, gravity is going to win. The whole core is going to collapse. And then the core has this sort of bounce off rebound explosion that ejects the outer layers of the star into space. And that is what we see as like the fireworks show of a supernova. So we could show up and see the fireworks moving and say, well, the fireworks are moving this fast and they're that far away. So just from those observations, we could figure out how long ago the star exploded. We can do that all the time now looking at the remnants of supernovae that we just missed. So we could maybe say, oh, that looks like it happened about 350 years ago. Let's zap to somewhere that's 350 light years away, get some popcorn and watch the explosion happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically with the, like the restaurant at the end of the universe. Yeah. Right. Basically <laughs> go backwards and forwards over some event. Um, <clears throat> so the next a big lingering question here is what can the astronomer do by being there that, I mean, the closest equivalent would be a satellite. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, you could have a remote thing. But I'm, I'm really curious, and, and this may go, you know, towards the edge of science or not. I'm curious, like, there's the experience. How would it affect the science, the, the fact that the astronomer could have firsthand uh, experience being that close? 
I mean, leaving aside just how unbelievably excited we would all be, like me and all my colleagues would so <laughs> love the chance to just fly to the things that we study. Right. So leaving aside the just volume of enthusiasm that would drive our research, sure. we just have a bunch of different tools available to us. Um, we're looking at things right now that are so far away. Like I said, most stars just look like little pinpricks. So being able to see them in like beautiful resolved detail would be amazing. Um, we collect light from all these stars and we think of that as visible light, like the light that our eyes can see. But these stars are emitting x-rays, they're emitting gamma rays, they're emitting radio waves. And the closer we get, the higher sort of a flux of light we have available to us. So instead of taking an exposure with the telescope for an hour, we could be like, you know, tourists on a tour bus and pull out a camera and just take like one shot and <laughs> learn a ton. So the ease of gathering data would immediately get better for us. And there is the question of, you know, what kind of observations or what sort of sampling we could manage by being so close. Um, we think about the probes that NASA is able to launch to Mars, for example, like Mars is the only planet entirely inhabited by robots because we have little <laughs> robots driving around. Or um, there was an amazing mission where NASA launched a probe that flew through the tail of a comet, scooped. Mm -hmm up some material from that comet and then came back. It actually returned with that sample. So I don't know what the space travel equivalent version is of leaning out the window and scooping up a sample, but we would actually yeah. potentially have tangible stuff that we could work with. Yeah, your pocket right. full of star, oh, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, there's think... some technical details that we would need to sort out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm pushing, I know I'm pushing it to sort of like, I don't know what we call it, woo-woo territory here. But Matt, for instance, uh, there's got to be, uh, let's say I think of a, an equivalent might be that ge geologists, right, or let alone zoologists or things like that, or anthropologists. I mean, there's all kinds of scientists who, because they're based, their science, their subjects are on Earth, they can go there. And I would think that, for instance, I don't know, a scientist, a geologist who can go to a place and be in the place uh, looking for dinosaur bones or I don't know, uh, that there's something about them being there that really can enhance the science that they could do that wouldn't quite be there, even if you sent like a 360-degree camera, mm -hmm. which is essentially what we've done with like the rovers, you know? Well, and I, th I think yeah. one of the, the imp one of to me anyway, one of the interesting implications here is that what it would mean to be an astronomer would be quite different because as Emily's book recounts so nicely, what it means to be an astronomer is to ferociously compete for a few hours of time, freezing your butt off on the top of a mountain, not having enough oxygen to get your few little pixels of data. Um, so the, as you say, sort of the embodied experience of being an astronomer is a very specific thing. But if astronomy becomes more like geology, you can just go to the star then that that physical experience of what it means would be quite different. And I would imagine that uh, it might attract different sorts of people, right, who are interested in different sorts of things too, right? Because right now, if you want to be an astronomer, you have to be the kind of person who's comfortable sitting in a tiny cold room surrounded by machines um, <laughs> and, and hoping that your three hours of telescope time this year turn out well. Um, as opposed to the geologists who can just march through their valley and sit down and have lunch whenever they feel like it and pick up a rock and stick it in their pocket, right? Um, those are different sorts of people and different sorts of experiences. 
Yeah. It's, an, it's an interesting question, though, because like I'm sure geologists would immediately say, well, we have to apply for grant funding, too, and we have to feed people on those trips. But it, it yeah. becomes and we're imagining cheap faster than light travel, not necessarily yeah. ubiquitous faster than light travel. So maybe then the question becomes, well, do you fly to Betelgeuse and see how it's doing? Do you find the list of every habitable planet that we know of and send a trip to each one? to from orbit of that planet see like has anybody built a city here do we see any signs of trees do we see any signs of life um looking for biosignatures of life on other planets is incredibly challenging right now and if we could just zap over to the planet that would be very different and then like you imagine do you send astronomers on those trips do you send biologists do you send diplomats do you send translators like (laughs) definitely not diplomats the diplomats But that's a really important question, right? Because right now, if you want someone to talk about habitable planets, you go talk to an astronomer because they're the people Mm -hmm. who gather the information and analyze the information about planets around other star systems. But if you can actually go to one of those other planets, the person who's good at analyzing the data might not be the person you want along. You want somebody who's good at hiking up and down valleys, right? Um, And that's a different sort of sort of skill set. Um, I should say there's uh, this kind of reminds me of the early days um, of the Apollo program um, with NASA in that for the first time, human beings were going to be directly interacting with a celestial body. So astro- the astronomers aren't going to be any help with that. So who do you talk to to train your astronauts and how to do this? Um, and the answer turned out to be geologist, Gene Shoemaker, particularly. Emily, I don't know if you've Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. We mm-hmm. sent one geologist to the moon. Gene Schumacher and a couple other geologists trained all of the guys who walked on the moon. And then Jack Schmidt on Apollo 17 became the only um, astronaut at the time with a science background. He was a trained geologist to actually walk on the moon. And they talked about the value of having just the training to know I'm going to pick up this moon rock instead of that moon rock. Mm-hmm. And Knowing the history of it, I know exactly where we want to land or exactly what samples might help us answer questions. So this would be that on just a mega scale in terms of what astronomers training would become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I think also there's something about like, the fact that you are um, able to see you're, you essentially yourself are gathering so much data and you can and you're processing it at the same time with your scientific training and you're able to ask questions and perhaps even, you know, that quickly change what it is you want to study in a way that you couldn't. I think one thing that's important, I guess I can emphasize is uh, people don't understand. One thing people don't understand is astronomers don't look through telescopes necessarily Mm -hmm. most of the time. The other thing is how limited our access to seeing space is. I mean, you've already changed a little bit. Like in my mind, it's like, oh yeah, there's tons of telescopes all over the world and astronomers and we're just seeing you know, I've seen a million incredible pictures from the Hubble, and I know that's just one telescope, and there's all kinds of my my senses that we're just constantly looking all over the place. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is actually in the scheme of things, we have just extremely tiny bandwidth to, to just look up even. Oh, yeah, we can. We've got telescopes constantly pointing at things, but every telescope can only point to one thing at a time. And the universe is a really big place. So if we doubled the amount of telescopes that we had on the planet instantly, we would still have far more observing that we would like to do than we would have capacity to do it. So the idea of just being able to hop in a bus and head to a planet that we had questions about is 
a really compelling one in terms of what our research would be like. Yeah. Now, what's another, what's an even more ambitious, what's the most ambitious uh, observation you would make? So right now we're able to detect light from distant galaxies or distant exploding stars that are happening so far away that we're looking back in time almost to the beginning of the universe. We're seeing exploding stars that happened when the universe was, you know, I think half a million, half a, like pretty, pretty young. So being able to f just immediately hop across the entire universe <laughs> sounds compelling. We would run into this same weird faster than light problem that we would be heading there to find out what the other end of the universe is like today. But basically, as we travel farther, we start getting a hint of what our sky will look like in so many years. I don't know, the whole the whole faster than light travel thing does bring with it some buggy time travel questions. And I'm imagining this in the same way that they imagine it in like Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or Firefly, like you're just kind of teleporting or taking the express bus. You're not, you can imagine some horrible thing of, well, I'm gonna fly to a nearby star, get my data and come back, but because of time dilation, it's taken me 45 years to do my PhD thesis. So that's right, that's right. That's right. we're ignoring that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> or there's that great, I mean, I'm gonna say uh, Interstellar, not a perfect movie as a movie goes, but there's obviously he, he in that movie, Christopher Nolan plays out a lot of very interesting, um, thought experiments one of which is i remember when uh was it matthew mcconaughey and uh whoever he's with they go to another planet that's close to a black hole so every minute is a year or something on that and they come back and the guy who was waiting behind for them you know they were supposed to be gone maybe four years or whatever it's been like 20 or 30 years and he's like it's been he's really old it's been 20 yeah <laughs> yeah we want to avoid that particular moment. problem yeah yeah, yeah. yeah publication schedules would really be thrown off that's right yeah right totally but okay but this is this is fascinating this is really the this is a beautiful coup de gras that you would go in other words, um going to one of the things i imagine you want to be able to witness a big part of astronomy is not just observing what's there and seeing what it is but actually ultimately you're trying to learn the physics and learn how it all works right and so the biggest question one i would say is is what happened after the big, what, what was the big bang or what happened immediately? You know, what's that whole process where our universe was formed? What you're saying is, oh, you could go there. You could go. Yeah. So could we go to the big bang? If you could travel back would, in time. This would be the restaurant, yeah, the restaurant at the beginning of the universe. So we could play a different what the if of what happens if you could travel back in time and you could travel back somehow while staying intact to the time shortly after the Big Bang. And we are actually, as astronomers now, we're more like time travelers than distance travelers because we're actually still detecting light here on Earth that is from sort of the early moments and the early sort of echoing remnant of the Big Bang. It's something called the cosmic microwave background, and we detect it with radio telescopes. So the light has a wavelength that's too long for our eyes to see, but radio telescopes can. So we can see that. We actually can travel back in time via telescope and have a look at what this early echo after the Big Bang would be. And that's a story that I actually talk about in The Last Stargazers because its detection came about almost by accident. Um, there were two astronomers working at Bell Labs in New Jersey, um, Arno, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, um, and they were trying to design an extremely perfect 
radio telescope. And they kept getting this weird little background hiss. And they were just like, well, we don't want any hiss at all. What is that? And they're trying everything they possibly can to make it as quiet as possible. Um, they had pigeons roosting in the detector and they were like scraping out what the pigeons leave behind and clearing out the pigeons and the pigeons come back. They clear back. Yeah, it's one of the more famous, the one of the more famous glamorous stories of astronomers scooping out bird poop from their Yep. And they eventually, they eventually realized the bird poop wasn't the culprit. This echo of the Big Bang was. So, you know, the Nobel Prize came in part from assiduously scrubbing up bird poop. But that, that sort of time travel. It could have been the poop. Matt, would you have still gotten the Nobel Prize? They should have got, gotten. If it turned out that it was the poop, then there's some prize. There's some prize they could have gotten. Maybe prize. from the Clorox Corporation or something. Um, <laughs> but I just realized that I actually get to insult myself now with one of those great insults I've always wanted to hurl at someone but never actually found the opportunity. My hypothesis is invalid, uh, right? <laughs> so by time traveling to, I was thinking, oh, time travel to the Big Bang, but in fact, I'm going forward in time. So in fact, I would be 14, I would basically see that whatever I got to if I if I went to the edge of the of the observable universe, right? Mm -hmm. I'd get there and I would just see what it's like 14 billion years later. If you you would get there and see what it's like now. Mm -hmm. Um we think the universe is about yeah, about 14 billion years old. So if right. we traveled 14 billion light years across yeah. the universe, it would look when we got there very different than it looks to us here on earth. We see the we see that light from 13.7 billion years ago so if we actually zapped our way there we would see what that part of the universe looks like now we'd have skipped the 13.7 billion years of evolution in between the two so it makes the idea of time travel versus space travel really wonky when you start to pull in distances that are that dramatic and i imagine that what a lot of astronomers would want to do because keep in mind our information is also old if you observed something with light that was several billion years old and then said okay we're gonna go there you have very outdated information on what's there you don't know what stars might be present what planets might be present right, what right. space is gonna look like so i imagine that if we suddenly came up with faster than light travel for astronomers we would start by sticking somewhat close to home while we sort of got a grip on the technique and said, okay, well, we know that there's some nearby stars. We know there's some nearby planets. We know there's, we know there's some things we want to take a close look at and would start expanding out beyond that. I'm also confident that if you asked five astronomers this question, you'd get five different answers. So I think we'd all have some really interesting conversations about, you know, like, are we going to look for habitable planets? Are we going to go fly to hundreds and hundreds of stars and try to survey them? Um, do we send robotic probes instead of ourselves? Like, does an astronomer need to go in that um, faster than light spacecraft or do you send a camera or something like that? So it would make for a very different kind of debate. Wow. So um, what do we think? Is, if I got to the edge of, if I went 14 billion light years from here mm -hmm. uh, and I got there, I'm guessing, well, it probably would look like it looks here. Exactly. Now. Exactly. It would look like yeah. it does here. Um, that right would be the worst. That'd be the most anticlimactic journey, right? Ever. Well, yeah, that's right. And there's actually, I should there's say, a there's a special. Yeah, there's a special name for this in cosmology. It's a cosmological principle. Actually, it states that this will be the case. Sort of wherever you go in the universe, when you look back, it's going to look pretty much the same as wherever you left. Um, 
And it turns out that the consequences of that are really profound. Um, and take some work to tease out. And if I, but if I look, okay, so now here's the interesting. So I travel 14 billion light years and then I stop and uh, get out, stretch my legs for a bit. And I look around and yeah, okay. So everything around me nearby looks, you know, different shapes, but kind of basically similar to what I see now in, in looking out from our solar system. However, when I look back towards home, the Milky Way, I am now seeing the Milky Way before it would, well, I, would I see a much smaller universe, for instance? What, what am I, because like the Milky Way hasn't been born yet, perhaps. Um, you might see the Milky Way in the process of forming, but you, would, you certainly wouldn't see our sun or Earth. Our sun, we think, is about four and a half billion years old. So if you suddenly right. leapt 13 billion years across the observable universe and tried to look back, in addition to it being way, way too dim to see, um, right. our sun isn't from, according to your eyes, our sun won't have been born yet. So it would be very much a sort of jump to a different part of the universe. And now that part of the universe looks like here. And the farther you're looking, the farther back in time. So that's valuable. So that's funky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Matt, what is your, uh, what do they call it? Uh, RFP. What's your request for a proposal? With this? <laughs> well, I should say, um, as a historian, I would want to take advantage of this to look not just at dying stars and evolving galaxies, but our own planet, too. Right. So oh. if you've always wanted to know exactly what happened at the siege of Vienna, um, fly yourself 400 light years from Earth, look back at Earth and you can watch it happen. Um, but you would, would need some, you would need a serious telescope. We would need some substantial telescope improvements. But if we've got faster than light travel, I mean, sure. Um, but if, you, if anybody remembers the opening of the movie Contact, where we're sort of backing away from Earth and we're hearing radio transmissions getting older and older, if you could jump to a place that was, say, 50 light years away or 200 light years away, and you had the ability to pick pick stuff like that up, maybe you would get the chance to see something. I mean, our radio transmissions have not lasted for very long in the grand scheme of Earth's age, but you could potentially get little glimpses back into history. It's probably bearing at least some resemblance to what we now know and what we have recorded, but it does, it does make for a fun experiment of what it would kind of look like as we backed up and then looked back at ourselves. I think we just, I just figured out what, it's always astounded me. What happens, how is all this old TV stuff wind up on YouTube? Who's uploading? It's, and I think it's maybe, the faster than light astronomers. So you're yeah, thinking. someone yeah. has sent us out. <laughs> They're just sending back the old shows in real time. Um, so uh, lastly, what happens if I go, so and again, this is a question for both of you. Uh, I've gone 14 billion years, 14 billion light years away. And I think what we're, we're assuming is with this thing, it's almost like, we can basically go anywhere, right? So uh, that, that for our experience, it's uh, no time passes at all, right? Um, with all the complications that happen with that. But uh, how far could I, like, what if I do a um, uh, 100 billion light years away or something? What, what happens? How far can I go? So the question is really how big is the universe? or where is the edge of the universe? And we hear a lot about this idea of, you know, expansion, that the universe is expanding. So how you define that depends on sort of how long it's been 
since the Big Bang and what and essentially almost how we define a unit of length. So if you're traveling out, quote, past what you would call the edge of the universe, it doesn't necessarily mean, first of all, that there's no universe there. It just means that we might not have received light from that universe. So that's the faster than light astronomy equivalent of sailing off the edge of the map for ancient explorers. <laughs> the edge of the map didn't mean that there was no more Earth. It just meant that you didn't know it was there. So you'd be doing, right. here be dragons cosmology as right. you flew to that part of the universe. Although even then, they, they, there certainly may have been a time where they didn't know. Yeah, where I you mean, didn't know if there was an edge. Right, um, exactly. And this is something that's actually always interested me when you think about this faster than light travel and then you think about the places that we see it, which is sci-fi shows. Because mm -hmm. you'd imagine like astronomers should have a kind of important job in the Star Wars universe. Like an astronomer would be an important person, right? Because they know... Mm -hmm. The, they know where everything is. On the other hand, maybe they would have the position that cartographers have today because you don't need an astronomer. You've got the whole star map loaded into your ship or like we have maps loaded into our iPhones. But you'd think that the role of an astronomer would be important in a very space exploring society. And I found it super interesting that in like Battlestar Galactica or Firefly or The Expanse, we don't see astronomers. We have people who are conversant in their immediate like solar system neighborhood or nearby planets and the nearby neighborhood of our galaxy. But I'd love to know what they need astronomers for. Yes, then. Are, have we become totally obsolete? Mm -hmm. Are we super special and important, but addressing things that we just don't see the characters dealing with? Or is the field changed so utterly that the job is just something else? Yeah, there's all kinds of missed opportunities there because ultimately those people aren't even what we see of those people in the shows, they aren't really even doing their job, except for the fighter pilots, they get a lot of time. But most of the people aren't really doing their job. They're, it's like a, they're having love affairs and stuff like that. And I'm going to guess astronomers have that too, and there's a lot to be had. So I think an observatory would make an amazing sitcom. Why hasn't that been? Done? Oh, that's not a bad idea, actually. Right? <laughs> it, it, Emily, have you sold the uh, movie rights to your, or the TV rights to your book yet? Not yet, but right. these. this is part of the appeal of the book, too, is that astronomy is done by people. And astronomy can feel like a really kind of remote and like out there irrelevant sometimes to people's job compared to what we do every day here on Earth. But it's driven by humans with a huge amount of curiosity and people who love science and people who try to drive their cars up to remote telescopes and wind up, you know, sliding into a ditch on the side of the observatory road or people who drink inhuman amounts of coffee to stay awake all night or who freak out when a tarantula wanders into the dome, which happens more often than you might think. Um, <laughs> and just the wacky stories that we run into in the course of doing our jobs, there's a wonderful absurdity to it that I really wanted to capture in The Last Stargazers, because the fact that we're even asking, you know, how did the universe begin? Are we alone? Those are wild questions on their own. And then the misadventures that we go through as part of answering those questions are a whole window into the human side of the field. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I'll just end uh, with. Um, I remember when I was up at, uh, the, I guess it was the Lick Observatory, but they also have a lot of modern uh, telescopes there too. Obviously, not just the old one. And uh, we were in one of the domes, and I just remember, and we, the astronomer was kind of giving us a tour around, and there was a moment of quiet, and we were just sitting there, and all of a sudden there was this very quiet click would have not paid any attention to it whatsoever. But the astronomer said, did you hear that? And I was like, yeah. I was like, what, is, what was that? And he's like, well, a photon just arrived <laughs> from the edge of the universe. 
And then, you know, a long time later, click, oh, there's another one, one photon, you know, <laughs> and I was just like, that is, that is amazing. Um, my last question for you is just to touch, just to touch on it and then we'll wrap up um, with uh, gravitational wave astronomy, for instance, this is a new thing now. If yeah. I could travel, what kinds of things could I experience? Um, it sounds like I could really get shaken up. Like <laughs> that could be a real, you could measure, you could, I don't know what, what would happen? How, how would that work? So the good news about gravitational waves is you might not get shaken up to the point where you'd be in any real danger. So gravitational waves for listeners who are hearing about them for the first time or the first time in a little while are basically waves in the fabric of space-time. They're little density ripples that are caused when something like two massive black holes collide and merge. And you get this propagating wave out from the collision of those black holes that we're now amazingly capable of detecting here on Earth. But the waves are tiny. We've built detectors um, here in Washington State, where I'm at, um, in Louisiana, in Italy, that ha are basically giant L-shaped pairs of arms, and the L's will be squished a little bit by the arrival of a gravitational wave. But that squish is about one one-thousandth the width of a proton. It's so small that like writing out the number just doesn't mean anything. It's just a one and a ridiculous amount of zeros after it. Um, so we can detect these things, but they're tiny. So if you were to take a gravitational wave detector with you out to 500 light years away or a million light years away, the detector would be picking up the same thing. Um, it would be more sensitive because it would now be in space, but you'd just still be getting these little tiny ripples and bumps and waves from um, black, colliding black holes or colliding stars or all these sorts of other little sources of ripples in space-time. So I don't know that that field would change dramatically apart from the sensitivity of putting a detector in space, but you could try to put yourself near, for example, to very massive black holes that you think are about to collide and see if that gives you any additional information. But gravitational wave astronomy is utterly fascinating. It's a brand new field. You could have done a show like this 10 years ago with what if we could detect gravitational waves? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. People were working yeah. on it, but hadn't done it yet. And yeah. it's such an exciting new area to just see what we're finding. Um, cool. Yeah. No, I'm going to go surfing gravitational waves. That's, that's my dream. <laughs> um, Matt, any last thoughts? No, that's great. It would be uh, a, a sea change in what it means to be an astronomer. Um, it would be interesting to, uh, then go 100 years in the future and see how Emily's profession has changed. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. the profession's changed in the past 100 years dramatically. Like 100 years ago, when we took a picture with the telescope, we captured the picture on a glass plate that was mm -hmm. chemically treated to mm -hmm. darken when it was exposed to light. And people would literally climb into telescopes and ride alongside them to take that data. And I have tons of stories about just the absurd stuff that we used to do to those glass plates in the last stargazers. So if you'd taken those astronomers and shown them what we do today, they'd also be amazed. So maybe we won't have faster than light travel in 100 years. Something tells me that's a bit of a reach. But even what astronomers are going to be doing in 100 years is going to be stunning. And then the, the faster than light thought experiment is a great way to imagine what we could do someday. Yeah, right. We're only, what are we, are we 500 years from Galileo? When oh, Galileo? Less. 400. Yeah. 400. Mm -hmm. See? Nothing. No time at all. 
Yeah. Wow. Emily, thank you for this is this is I think we may have earned our frequent flyer miles here uh, yes. on this particular show. We certainly went quite far. I think at last count, we went 100 billion light years away. I don't know what happened to us at that point. We're just we'll just have to wait 100 billion years and find out. <laughs> um, the book is The Last Stargazers, and it is out now. Um, any particular place you want to send people to get that? Um, you, I strongly suggest buying it from one of your favorite local bookstores. Yes. Um, you can find them on IndieBound. If you go to thelaststargazers.com too, we have buy links for Amazon, for Barnes and Noble and IndieBound. So you can go to your favorite local seller, um, just really wherever you can, wherever you like to get your books. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you have any, any events coming up you want to plug or any other shows? I actually post event info as it comes up on thelaststargazers.com. Um, I'll do things like bookstore library events and podcasts like this. So people can check out that site for up-to-date information. Fantastic. Anything, cool. any other thing, Twitter, anything like that you want to send yeah, people I'm, to? I'm on Twitter at, it's an amalgam of my first and last name. So at E-M-S-Q-U-E is where you can find me on Twitter. And yeah, I'll post a lot of news about the book there. So you can also follow me on Twitter to learn more about The Last Stargazers. Fantastic. Go awesome. find Dr. Emily Lavec. Um, Matt, do you have anything coming up you'd like to plug? Um, hopefully the start of the fall semester. Um, and uh, as soon as I know what that's going to look like, I'll let you know. Yes, I think that will even change. I don't think anyone can claim. But I think the, there's a very high uncertainty factor mm -hmm. in what anyone's going to see from day to day. So good luck to all the students and professors who are getting ready. I know my wife is a teacher as well in the New York public schools, and it's every day we have a new picture. So I hope yeah. everyone is doing well who's listening. We know you are all over the world, um, northern and southern hemispheres, and uh, perhaps even eastern and western arms of the Milky Way. I'm not so sure. Uh, Facebook has a very wide reach, so I'm sure you're reading it out there as well. Uh, you can contact us at uh, the easiest way, actually, just go to our website, uh, yep. whattheif.com. You can listen to all our previous episodes there. You can learn about uh, Matt and this crazy guy who's talking right now. Um, and you can just, there, there's actually like a little message thing right on the front page. You can, on the right side, you can type us a message or you can click contact. You can subscribe. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so using your app whatever it is that you're listening to do that and by the way whatever it is you're listening on whether it's an app or a service like spotify or apple podcasts uh, they all offer ways for you to leave a review uh, if you can leave us a review that would be wonderful and if you can give us as many stars as they allow uh, there are more stars on heaven and earth ratio than you have ever gotten in your own podcast so <laughs> shakespeare shakespeare um uh, that would be wonderful. On Twitter, we are at What The If Show, and we're also on Facebook and all that, and we love hearing from you. And we, in fact, we love hearing your ideas for ifs. We've been away a while. It's like, I need to catch up. We need to get those brains re-energized. So I, I implore all you fellow ifers out there, send us your ideas. It doesn't matter how, there's no if is too crazy. Is that right, Matt? I think that is safe to say, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, or too simple, in fact. Yep, you know, sometimes the best ifs are the most simple ones. Yep. That's right, that's right. So, uh, Emily, I'm not sure if you know our ending ritual here. Matt, would, could you explain to Emily what we do and why? 
Well, we uh, we look ahead uh, to the future and the, uh, the, the possibility space of all of the ifs that lie beyond the horizon for us. Uh, and as we confront the enormity of that possibility space, um, we have an existential crisis while we say the name of the show. And so we cannot help but scream... What? The... the... Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>